Welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in PwC's national office and the host of this series. For today's episode, we're talking about an always popular topic, leases. I'm happy to welcome back to the studio frequent guests at PwC's digital campus, Suzanne Stefani and Mark Jerusalem, both leasing specialists, and I'm looking forward to having them on together to discuss this timely topic. So Mark, Suzanne, thank you so much for joining me in the studio today. And when I was preparing, I was noticing the fact that we're going to be releasing this right after Groundhog's Day. And it sort of reminded me of that movie, I don't know if you guys remember, with the weatherman who yep. just had to relive his life over and over again every day. And just wondering maybe if you guys felt like that being in the studio, considering I think you're my two most frequent guests. I, I realized that my, you know, day in the spotlight is setting as Cecil become, you know, more important. <laughs> you know? We're going to be having Chip and uh, Seth yeah. here more often. You're not going to see us much so with that. I think we're turning to a great topic as part of our series on helping people close their books and prepare for year-end reporting and focusing on lease presentation and disclosure. And it's obviously something companies, public companies, um, have been doing for the past three quarters and now just carrying that into your end. But I know that we've gotten a lot of questions along the way, so thought this would be a great time to run through some of those questions. But before we get into that, I just wanna start off kind of setting the scene. And I know one of the things when the FASB added all these disclosures compared mm -hmm. to our old standard was the idea that the users would really better understand the amount, timing, and uncertainty of cash flow arising from leases. So just curious if we've gotten any feedback, if this has happened, and what either users and or the SEC and others you know, are saying when they look at the financial statements. Yeah, well, I guess I could talk a little bit about users, so investors, and analysts. Um, yeah, we've heard, we've done some outreach through our investor outreach group that you know, most users do really appreciate having the operating leases on balance sheet now, and they do find the additional disclosures to be helpful just to kind of get more um, visibility into what's going on with a company's leases. Um, so they do find that helpful. And I did see a recent article actually um, with some things analysts observe about how they think the new leasing guidance is impacting balance sheets. And I bring it up only because it kind of drove home to me the importance of good disclosure and how you really need to think about those new disclosures um, to get really get like a full picture of a company's leasing situation. So one thing they observed was about variable lease payments and their impact on the lease liability. So just as a reminder, when a company sets up its lease liability, it's based only on fixed payments and any rate or index-based variable payments like CPI, for example, but any other variable payment is excluded from the lease liability. So think about things like um, payments based on percentage of sales or usage-based payments. So those aren't in the liability. So in this article, they kind of observed that depending on how a lease is structured, liabilities can be very different from company to company. And they noted that certain industries tend to have leases that are primarily variable payments. So they called these industries winners because their variable payments are excluded from their liabilities. So they were inferring that these liabilities should be lower. 
and they observed, well, nothing has changed in their financial situation. The new guidance was kind of making them look better. But to be clear, I just want to say there is an economic difference between a lease with all fixed payments and a lease with variable payments, right? Because variable payments are uncertain. These leases may actually be priced higher than leases of the same assets with fixed payments. But anyway, I could understand the observation they're making if you just focus on the balance sheet. The liabilities will be lower. And so this is where good disclosure would come in to help the users of the financials understand really what's going on with the company's leases. So the new guidance requires companies to disclose the amount of variable lease expense in each period and the basis and terms and conditions on which those variable payments are determined. So in a situation like this, where a company has significant variable payments that aren't in the liability, by looking at the disclosures, a reader should be able to get a good understanding of what's going on, right? So they should be able to not only see the variable payments that were paid in the period, but also get an understanding of what the payments are based on so they can kind of get a sense of what the payments should be in the future since they're not sitting there in the liability on the balance sheet. So it's just one way I think disclosure is really helpful and that article kind of shined a light on it. Yeah, I think two things on that, Suzanne. First, it is very interesting and I know the article talked about other things like discount rate mm -hmm. and some other yep. topics. And I think we'll include a link to the article in the show notes to just in case people want to check, uh, to check it out, they're able to. But then when you were speaking, it's reminding me of the discussion Mark and I had on the webcast um, in December in terms of comments that we've seen from the SEC and kind of on the same theme of can't just look at the balance sheet, like that the disclosures really need to explain what's going on. So maybe Mark, turning to you um, and to recap some of what you, we've already spoken about, what are we hearing from the SEC on disclosures? Right, so Heather, so leasing disclosures were discussed at the 2019 AICPA SEC conference that was in December. And at the conference's comment letter panel session, you know, they noted that the staff is still in the early stages of reviewing the leasing disclosures. Obviously, we'd expect more comments coming in this year, not you know, after the 10K season is over. But they did provide some helpful reminders. And I guess, you know, while it was kind of on a bit of a hodgepodge of different issues, I took away three themes, if you will, from that. So. The first theme was to avoid boilerplate disclosures. Boilerplate disclosures are ones that simply restate the requirements in, you know, in topic 842. And those are surprisingly very common, you know, and yet they don't really add much for the readers. The second one, of course, is to tailor your disclosures to the specific lease arrangements that you have. And if you have outliers or things that are significant or perhaps unusual, to talk about those. And then finally, um, the third thing would be to provide disclosures on the assumptions that went into how you applied the standard to those types of arrangements. Okay, well I think those are helpful themes and I'm always reminded of similar themes that we saw with the revenue standard where you know, we even saw where companies, because their maybe numbers hadn't changed that much, they really didn't tailor their disclosures properly and it seems like, again, the tailoring the disclosures is important. So Mark, on that note, what are some specific examples that we've seen in comment letters? Right, so again, we haven't seen you know, that many yet. I, I don't remember the exact number, but it's somewhere in the 40s. Oh, so the number not, of comment letters big. that we said, not that many yet. Um, but again, a, a good portion of it came in talking about disclosures, and especially those that were the disclosure appear to be somewhat boilerplate. And some of them were specifically on the areas that Suzanne mentioned, such as variable payments and the judgments around those variable payments. 
So if you'll permit me, I just want to read a couple of disclosures out loud. It sounds like I'm reading because I'm reading. <laughs> All right. Um, so here's one on variable payments, and I'll read just a part of it where they wrote, we also note based on your table that variable lease payments were approximately X percent of your total lease cost. Please tell us and revise your disclosure in future filings as necessary to clarify the basis and terms and conditions on which variable lease payments are determined and whether any of your variable payments depend on an index or a rate. So this was a really good one because on this one, the company just didn't give that much disclosure. Mm -hmm. It was clearly a significant amount of their total lease expense, right? But what was driving that variability? And to what Suzanne just mentioned, you know, that's what users are looking for. Right. Is it because they're usage-based ones? Is it because of some, some other rationale? They want to make sure that if they were indexed on for a rate that you were capturing them appropriately. The reason for the question seems to be that the SEC just couldn't tell from reading the disclosure what was driving it. Um, let me give one other example, and that was on discount rates. So again, just reading a part of it. We note your disclosure that your weighted average discount rate on operating leases is X percent. Please tell us and revise to disclose how you determine the discount rate. Now, again, the X percent may have seemed to be relatively high to them, you know, and there was no context as to how do they arrive at that rate. So, you know, things to think about in disclosing how one arrived at the rate, and this is supposed to be your incremental borrowing rate in most cases, would be talking about your assumptions perhaps regarding collateral, your assumptions as to what terms you, term you used mm -hmm. for the rate. You know, is it a five-year term or a 10-year term? And perhaps, if it was important, because I don't know, because it wasn't in the disclosure, right. right? the economic environment that those leases were in. But just to give some insight, again, you can imagine how useful this would be to a user right. to have an understanding of how that affects your cash flows going forward. Uh, so Mark, it's interesting, and I appreciate actually that you read those comments because I do think it gives context that the SEC is asking very specific questions. But again, going back to your themes, from a user perspective, the more information you have and detailed to understand the context of what they're seeing on the balance sheet and the income statement, the more helpful. Mm -hmm. And I know um, our investor outreach group also did do some outreach to investors and analysts and users and got very similar comments back that they're very focused on the disclosures, want to understand the additional information. So interesting. I know as well the SEC has commented on things like lease term, non-GAAP measures, sale lease back. So more for companies to look at and actually for our listeners, if you want to see more specifics, you can check those out on our CFO Direct website. There's a um, comment tool that you can use, so definitely encourage you to check that out. Um, so Suzanne and Mark then, with that background, why don't we move into the specific areas. We're going to start with balance sheet presentation and kind of work our way through the financial statements. And I know one question that we've gotten quite a lot is on how you determine the current versus non-current portion of the lease liability. Um, so what should companies be thinking about here? Yeah, so since the liability is new, um, with with the leases guidance, at least for operating leases, we are getting more questions about, you know, how do you think about what portion of the lease liability should be current or non-current on the balance sheet? So all the new leases guidance says is that classification as current or non-current would be the same as any other financial liability. So think about like debt, right? It's basically the same thing. So on this specific question, um, so let's assume there's no covenant violations and, and the lease is maturing in more than a year, then the amount in current is basically the next 12 months 
of lease payments. So that seems pretty simple. So why would we yeah, get a the, question? It seems straightforward. <laughs> but a question comes up on if those 12 months of payments should be discounted or not. Mm. And actually, like I said, it's really no different than debt. And, and with debt, we have this same question that comes up and, and there's a policy choice there. So either you can show those 12 months of payments gross or you can discount them using the discount rate and the lease liability. So just for example, if I had $100,000 of payments, lease payments that are due in the next 12 months, one option, right, is I could show $100,000 in current because that's just the gross amount that's due in the next 12 months or I could discount those $100,000 of payments using the le lease liability discount rate. So let's say the discount amount was 95, for example, then my other option is to show 95 as current. Now, this is a policy choice, but I think most companies would have already asserted a policy choice for their debt, so you should follow on with what you're already doing with debt there. And I guess, just another question, and you may not have this information, any sense if there's a trend towards gross or net, or it just I'm depends not sure. on? It, yeah, it really depends on a policy. Gross definitely seems a bit easier. So. Gross is easier, but some may be um, really sensitive to their ratios. Right, right. So. Okay, that's helpful. So then why don't we move on to our sort of most common question, the income statement. And I know we get questions around subleases and specifically whether or not sublease income can be netted with the head lease expense in the P&L. So basically you have your expense, you sublease the, the facility or whatever it is, so can you offset those amounts as a net expense? Right, so this is part of the popular theme of gross versus yes. net presentation <laughs> that we get in a lot of areas in GAAP. And on this one in particular, you know, when we look at the guidance itself, the guidance requires that subleases be disclosed, that we have to disclose the gross sublease income separately from the head lease expense. But it doesn't specifically address presentation on the face of the income statement. So that's where the question comes up. Mm -hmm. We know we have to talk about it, either right. on the face or in the footnotes. Um, you know, if you asked us, in general, gross presentation is probably always an acceptable answer, mm -hmm. right? Um, to show sublease income on one line and the head lease expense on another line, that would certainly be consistent with the balance sheet approach, right? Where if you have a sublease and you're not relieved of your obligations under the head lease, you would show the two things gross on your balance sheet. Right, no right of offset. Right, right. no right of offset. So, so that would always be an acceptable approach. Um, I don't think we would object, object to somebody presenting this net in the PNL. In other words, netting the sublease income against the head lease expense. If you're an entity that does not sublease or where the subleasing is not a significant business activity. So if it's just a one-off transaction, right, then it'd probably be acceptable also to, to net it. That view is also aligned somewhat theoretically with how a lessor displays their leasing activity in their income statement. So for a lessor, right, if they have gains or losses or profits on sales type leases or direct financing leases, they would um, present those in a manner that best reflects their own business model. So if they use leasing as an alternative to selling assets, then you would gross that up and show the revenue and the cost of goods sold separately. If they don't use it as a basis for selling assets, but they primarily do a financing, then they would show the profit on the lease as sort of one financing activity. So it, it kind of, um, coincides with that. So then Mark, just to 
really <laughs> simplify. If I'm a company, I have a facility, let's say I rented part of a building, and I don't need it anymore, I sublease, but it's sort of a one-off thing, maybe net would be acceptable versus I'm in the business of leasing buildings and subleasing those out. Um, so then that would likely lead to a gross presentation. That's right. Okay, thank you. All right, so then why don't we move on, Suzanne, to I know one of your favorite topics, which <laughs> is cash flow statements. So nice to have you back talking about that. Um, so why don't we just lay the groundwork and remind people of the sort of basic framework for how you present lease payments in the cash flow statement, specifically focused on operating leases for the lessee. Sure, yeah, because we get most of our questions from operating leases. Yes. So yeah, just the basics. Um, all cash payments for operating leases are going to be in the operating section of the cash flow statement. And then any changes to the lease liability and the right of use asset besides the changes related to the single lease expense should simply be disclosed as non-cash activities. So that could be new leases, remeasurements, modifications, terminations, things like that. I know though that we continue to get questions on the indirect method for operating leases because now you have two balance sheet accounts mm -hmm. associated with the lease, both your lease liability and your right of use asset. And then whereas under the old model, you only had one balance sheet account, like your prepaid or accrued mm -hmm. rent. So I know we've talked about this past podcast, mm -hmm. maybe webcasts, um, but I definitely think for our listeners, it's worth walking through again. Sure. Um, yeah, so I think the first thing, it's important to understand first what makes up the changes in the lease liability and the right of use asset. So if I start with the lease liability, so that balance is gonna increase for the interest portion of the single lease expense and it's gonna decrease for the cash lease payment. Um, now it's also gonna have, it's also gonna increase for new leases or change for any other remeasurement events. The right of use asset, it's gonna be reduced each period for the difference between the single lease expense and the accretion of interest on the lease liability. And then again, same with lease liability, right? It's gonna increase or, ch or change for remeasurement events. Um, so on the reconciliation to net income, that's where we get most of our questions. So the reconciliation to net income to get yourself to operating cash flows, we think the best approach is to show one line item for the portion of the single lease expense that reduces the right of use asset, and another line item for the change in the lease liability related to the lease payment, and then any other changes to these accounts for remeasurement events, they don't go into the reconciliation to net income. Those are just disclosed as non-cash activity. And we think this separate presentation makes the most sense because it is consistent with the balance sheet, right? They're shown as two separate right. accounts on the balance sheet. Um, but I do want to just bring up, we know in practice that some companies are still continuing to show that change as one line item in the reconciliation like they did um, in the old guidance and that's consistent with the income statement. Suzanne, thank you, that's helpful. So before we wrap up today then, I know we started off the podcast by talking about the annual disclosures and you know how users of the financial statements are looking at them, but we're starting to get questions from preparers of the disclosures around what things may look like for their interim disclosures that they'll have to prepare for the first quarter of 2020. So as our listeners start thinking about that, Mark, what are some hints that we can give them? So um, for the first quarter of this year, now we're talking about public companies or companies that have already adopted and had a full year behind them, right? right? 
So for the quarterly disclosures, what I'll just call year two, right? Um, the good news is that there is very few disclosures, right? Let's talk about lessors first. Lessors have one specific interim requirement to disclose, and that is that they're required to present a table format, to present in a table, all of their lease-related income items, okay? So that would include the profit from sales-type leases, direct financing leases. By the way, those should be presented either gross or net, consistent with their income statement presentation, like we just talked about a moment ago, and as well as their operating lease income and their variable lease income. So all of that should be in a tabular format, all right? Uh, even better news, perhaps, for lessees, because there are no interim requirements in 842. So technically, if you looked at 842, you wouldn't have much of a disclosure at all. However, I do have to remind people that you know, there's a whole topic on interim reporting requirements, mm -hmm. topic 270, and topic 270 always requires entities to report significant changes in financial position, accounting principles, and estimates, along with other information that helps the users understand how these interim financial statements may be compared to the most recent year-end. So if you've had some significant leasing activity or anything that's outside the norm, you should probably dis um, consider disclosing those in accordance with the interim reporting requirements in 270. And then finally, look, if, if, if leasing is an important part of your business, right, then, or, or important to how you operate your business mm -hmm. as a lessee, then you can, you can provide more disclosure. And, and some companies would probably have disclosures similar to their year-end disclosures if leasing is, is really important and a significant part of their business. Yeah, I, I, two things on that as well. I think on your point that companies may want to disclose more, I think for some companies, in some cases, maybe it's easier to carry forward your disclosures instead of potentially missing something. Or, as we talked about at the very beginning, if this is important information for your company, maybe it's better to just keep people up to date. So it's really going to depend on your your own business. The one other thing, you we touched on this very quickly at the beginning of this topic, and you made the point that when we talk about interim disclosures, we're talking about once people have done a full year. And I know we have a lot of companies that are calendar year end, but for those that aren't, I think that was an important reminder that for the whole first year, you have to make the full annual disclosures each quarter. And that would equally apply to CECL, which companies are going to be getting ready to disclose. So anyway, just a quick reminder on that. Um, so Suzanne, Mark, great discussion today. I think some helpful hints as people are wrapping up their financial statements. Um, really appreciate you being here. Sure. Thank you. Please join me here again next week. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our podcast series wherever you find your content. I'd also love to hear from you. So please reach out to me on LinkedIn with questions, suggestions, or just to follow me to stay up to date on the latest content. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.